Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. With one another, for one another. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time with my friends, and we simply just pray that, that our hearts, our minds, our whole lives would sit under the light and the beauty of the truth of the gospel. And then as you shine into our lives, you would, you would help me help my friends by pointing to the, to the wonder of the cross and everything that means for each and every one of us. It changes everything. We pray this in your name, Jesus. God's people said, amen. Have, have you ever been made to feel stupid for being a Christian? Maybe it's like a, a friend or a neighbor, coworker, a family member. And, and, and maybe it's real subtle, but you just sense that there's just kind of like a, a derision or a uh, kind of a cringe coming your way. I have a friend that uh, I'm particularly close to, and he's probably unsure about what he believes. Um, and, and he is a group of friends that I'm pretty sure are certain they don't believe in the gospel and, and Christianity. And I hang out with him probably a couple times a year, kind of on his terms in, in his house or at one of his parties. Usually it's like a birthday or, or just a get-together. And, uh, it, you know, this has happened probably about six, seven times now, so I'm picking up on a pattern. <laughs> but it goes something like this. I'm hanging out at my friend's house, and I'm making a new acquaintance who is a friend of his, and we're having a great conversation. I'm a good question asker, I think. Um, and so I'm drawing stuff out of the person that I'm meeting. I'm getting to know them. And whether it's three minutes into the conversation or 30 minutes into the conversation, usually the question comes up then from them to me, hey, what do you do for a living? And then I say, well, I'm a pastor. And they always say something like, really? And then it's followed sometimes by, you don't seem like a pastor, which I don't know how to take. Is that an insult or a compliment? It's confusing. But, but sometimes it usually, and I would say most of the time, it, it just kind of ends there. <laughs> Shockingly, they at that moment usually remember that there was somebody else they needed to speak to at the party, and then they just kind of wander away from me. And it hurts my feelings, if I'm honest, right? Like, I don't like to, not re I mean, it kind of does. It just, that's not a good feeling. That's not pleasant. You just sense that, like, I'm, I'm being looked down on, or uh, they think probably what I stand for and what I'm giving my life to is foolish. And you probably, in your own way, shape, or form, even here in Edmond, Oklahoma, experience that to some degree, and probably to a greater degree as time goes on. And thank God many people in our city love Jesus, but many also think that following Jesus is outdated or ignorant and places us on the wrong side of history. And that's nothing new. People all throughout history have always believed that Christianity is foolish. I learned this week that actually quite possibly the first artistic depiction of Jesus is a, a piece of graffiti. I'll show it to you. It's known as the Alex, uh, Alex it's so hard for me to say, Alex Menos, Al, Alex A. Menos, Alex A. Menos. There we go. Alex A. Menos <laughs> Graffito, Alex A. Menos Graffito. It was a, a piece of graffiti that was found about the mid-18th century. It was carved into a wall in Rome 
It's believed by scholars to be from about 150 to 200 AD, very early in Christianity. And it shows a man worshiping a figure hanging on a cross, but that figure hanging on the cross has the head of a donkey. And the caption reads, here we go again, Alexemenos, <laughs> Alexemenos worships his God. I think we have a rub of that ancient graffiti so you can get a better look. It's a, it's a crude drawing carved, I'm sure, very quickly. And in the context of where this was, it was, a, it was a boarding house for pages for the emperor. Many young men in their late teens lived in the place this was found. So you just imagine the scenario. One of these boys knows, we'll call him Alex, so I don't have to say it again, knows this young man named Alex who's a Christian, and to mock him to tease him, to represent how foolish his beliefs are, he carves in the side of this boarding house wall a picture, and the message is clear. Jesus is a you-know-what, and anybody who worships him is too. The church in Corinth was not under physical persecution like many of the churches of the early church, not like in Rome or Jerusalem were they experiencing great persecution or poverty? But they were experiencing a mockery, a, a feeling of, of cringe or foolishness from the culture around them. And they were, many of them in the church then, were slightly embarrassed by Jesus. Like a, like a junior high kid wanting to be dropped off a block away from school by his mom so he doesn't have to be seen by her. The church in Corinth is saying, hey, I love you. I just don't want to be seen with you even though my life exists because of you. Thanks for giving birth to me and all, right? But, but I'm a little embarrassed of you right now. How immature, right? How short-sighted, how unloving, and yet... The church in Corinth, as they related to their Savior and, and Lord, as it relates to how they were seen by culture, they just felt that, that foolishness that culture held towards them for believing in Christianity, that the message of the cross was, was too humiliating, it was too brutal, far too strange to put your hopes in. And so there was this contingent within the church of Corinth that thought, hey, we're interested in kind of moving on from the message of the cross. We want to move on to higher wisdom. We want to be able to kind of tweak and contextualize this message of the cross to really help it impact Corinth in power. If we can just make some changes, make it a little less weird, a little, a little more intellectual, then maybe our, our city would really embrace Christianity. And Paul's going to say in this letter, actually, no, 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 the opposite's going to happen. You change the message of the cross, you lose its power. And you're not going to move on from the message of the cross to some higher wisdom. You're actually in danger of abandoning your faith altogether. See, in this, this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church, they're right to expect people to think of them as foolish for worshiping Jesus because Paul says that's exactly what they will think. And so in light of a place where you're seeking to follow Jesus and the world is looking at you as a fool because you follow him, what do you do? How do you live? What do you hold on to as true? And Paul tells the church in Corinth, he gives them direction, he gives us direction. 
A couple things I just want to see today together. We're going to take this in two chunks, this, this passage. And the first thing that Paul tells us, he tells us about foolishness, wisdom, and the message of the gospel. Foolishness, wisdom, and the message of the gospel. Look at verse 18 again together. This is the first thing Paul says in this passage. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So Paul's going to come out right out the gate in this passage and say, hey, the, the, the cross, if it seems stupid to somebody, it's a sign that they have a life that's headed down a path of destruction and away from the source of life himself, who is God. And yet, if, if the cross seems like the saving power of God to somebody, that means that they are on the path of life, that they know true wisdom and salvation in God, that the cross is actually the great dividing line for eternal destiny. It comes down to, to the way that we see one thing, the cross. Either it's folly or it's salvation. And we're looking at that statement 2,000 years later, and, and it's hard for us to really get struck by just how just scandalous or strange that would have been. I want to take a moment to try to put ourselves in the seats of the original hearers of the message of the cross and how weird it might sound. Think about it this way. Like, imagine a family moves into your neighborhood, and they invite you over to get to know them. And you, you go over, and the wife, in joy and real kindness, she greets you at the door, yet you notice she's wearing earrings, and those earrings are, are a little silver mold of a noose, a hanging noose. And you're thinking, that's super weird. But okay, we're already here, so... And then you go into their kitchen, and they have, they have a gallery wall, right, of, of different kinds of ornate nooses hung up in different sizes and designs. And you're like, this is getting weirder and weirder. And then you swim after lunch, and the husband has a noose tattooed on his heart, right? And you're like, I'm out of here. What on earth is, these are the weirdest people on earth. The noose is, is offensive. It's a symbol of death and destruction. And yet... 2,000 years ago, that's what the cross was exclusively. It was offensive. In, in Roman society, it was not pol in, in polite company. You didn't even talk about the cross. It was unmentionable. It was one thing for a Roman to be killed. It was illegal for a Roman to be crucified. Ultimate shame. Ultimate power symbol for the Roman Empire. And yet Paul's preaching was focused on the cross and, and, and this thing that was a symbol of destruction and shame and death. Paul's saying, hey, actually, that's the very center of our understanding of, of the love of God and the meaning of life and what it means to live a life of flourishing. You have to understand the cross and, and the people that are hearing this are, are taken aback. It's unbelievable. It seems incredibly foolish and silly and stupid that something so crude and dishonorable would have anything to do with salvation and life and God. They would say, hey, that makes no sense. And yet Paul goes on to say, hey, let's just talk about God's wisdom and human wisdom. In verse 19, he says, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
See, Paul argues that God turning the wisdom of the world upside down isn't new, but that's how God has gone about his work from the very beginning. Scriptures promise that that's how God operates. Case in point, what Paul is quoting here is Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And to give some, some context to this, it's a moment where the prophet Isaiah is, is proclaiming truth of God to God's people. And what's happening here historically is the nastiest, meanest, scariest ancient empire, the Assyrian Empire, they have already, got, God's people, their kingdom has divided to this point. And up in the north was the kingdom of Israel, and to the south was the kingdom of Judah. And the Assyrians have already laid waste to Israel in the north, just totally conquered and laid waste to the, the, the kingdom of Israel in the north. And yet they are gearing up, they're breathing down the necks of the southern kingdom of Judah. And with Assyria breathing down their necks, what does the kingdom of Judah do? What, what, is God's, what do God's people do? Do they, do they pray? Do they repent? Do they call on God for their deliverance? Do they, do they fast? Do they go to war actually under the banner of being God's people and trusting that he's going to lead them and empower them? No, they run to Egypt since they have such a great history with Egypt as a people. And they run to Egypt and they think, hey, through our diplomacy, through our scheming, through our, our political partnering, we're going to be able to use our own wisdom and work this out for our own good. Egypt will save us. We don't need God's power or help. We're self-sufficient. And to that, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, hey, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning the discernment of the discerning. Many translations say the intelligence of the intelligent. I will thwart. God says, hey, you don't look to me for wisdom. You look to yourself for ultimate wisdom. That wisdom is going to be wasted. Hey, and a big note here before we move on, like something that's really important to grasp is Paul is not anti-intellectual. Paul is not against being intelligent. Paul is super smart. <laughs> Paul taught profoundly. Paul, Paul argued powerfully. Paul had deep thoughts. Paul wrote masterfully. The Bible is not anti-wisdom. There are whole sections of Scripture that are known as wisdom literature, Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, right? Our faith, our God is, is pro-wisdom. Paul, this, what he has in his crosshairs in this passage is a particular type of so-called wisdom that is totally man-centered, denying reliance on God and, and basing wisdom on man's self-sufficiency. It's the first problem humans ever had, and it's the root problems of everything that we ever have that's a problem. It's it's. Prideful self-sufficiency, prideful self-sufficiency, saying, hey, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. I don't need the wisdom of God. I know better than God. The very essence of our broken relationship with God started there in the garden with, with Adam and Eve. The very heart of the matter was Adam and Eve rejecting God's wisdom and saying, hey, you've given us direction. We think we know better. We think you're holding out. We think that you've missed some things. And in our own power, in our own strength, by our own wisdom, we'll navigate life without you, God. This is sin. This is the beginning of sin, the essence of sin. And humans 
Ever since, you and I, each and every one of us, have been claiming to know the way of wisdom without God. And so Paul asks in light of this, verse 20, so where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's essentially like saying, hey, give me your best shot. Any, any profound teacher of the law, any famous scribe or rabbi, let him explain the depths and the mystery and the meaning of life. Any philosopher that is popular in Corinth or all through Rome, have him stand up and, and put him forth and have him speak about the, the meaning of life and the profound mysteries of the world. And this is a rhetorical question, but we can imagine this early church actually having a whole bunch of real people come to mind. Jewish scribes and religious leaders, philosophers following the path of Aristotle and and Plato. They could see people everywhere that could answer the call to Paul's question. Everywhere they looked, there were people offering ultimate wisdom. Hey, this is the point of life. This is the path to follow to find real human flourishing. The good life is found this way. There were thousands of people that claimed to have that message 2,000 years ago, just like there are thousands of people today that claim to have that message and offer wisdom for us. Under different names, we're in the same place. Girl, wash your face. Woman, lived untamed. Men, act like a lobster and 11 other rules that will lead you to You know the book I'm talking about. If you don't, don't worry about it, right? (laughs) But where are all these philosophers, ancient or today, these people that offer like the path to, to wisdom in terms of power? How do they stack up? And Paul, in a real way, is saying, hey, like Jesus is speaking. Anybody else that thinks they're offering wisdom, just sit down and listen. Take a seat, close your mouth, open your heart. Verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is the point. The wisdom of the world that is self-reliant and rejects dependence on God can do all sorts of things extraordinary things. Humans are fascinating and and carry so much glory. The Imago Dei, the very image of God, like what a man or a woman can accomplish is extraordinary. I mean, this is what Genesis 11 is about. Like the Tower of Babel, amazing heights can be reached rooted in human pride. But the danger of that is that, that that accomplishment and that wisdom that's rooted, a worldly wisdom that says, I know the way without God, it can do extraordinary things that ultimately lead to destruction. It can't reveal the ultimate things that we need to know. Even beautiful benefits can come from it, thank God, but it doesn't answer the deepest questions that must be answered. The example, as I was studying this week, of science was given. Praise God for science. I am pro-science, but science can't answer the ache of your soul. 
Famously, Stephen Hawking in his book, The Brief History of Time, I can't understand what he's trying to write about. But it's just like the unified theory, this, this one exp- explanation of matter and energy and physics. He's, he's writing about the exploration of that in this book. But towards the end of the book, he writes this in his genius. He says, even if there is only one possible unified theory, it is just a set of rules and equations Listen to what he asks. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them for them to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model can't answer the question of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? This is an incredible intellect a force in intelligence. And he's saying, look, I'm trying to discern the truth about the universe, but the best I can help to find is just the blueprint. And I can, I can discern maybe the, the construction and the design of this thing, but even if I, I discover the blueprint, it doesn't describe who built it and why it was built. There's only one thing we need to know above everything. We need to know God. And not just know about him, but truly to, to know him, to have communion with him, to experience his, his love and his salvation and his grace and his forgiveness so that we can have life as it was meant to be lived, life abundantly, as Jesus said. And the wisdom of the world seems wise, but it comes to a dead end when it can, can offer nothing regarding the true meaning of life. And the folly of the cross seems foolish, but it actually leads to salvation. Paul goes on to give the example of, of worldly wisdom and he gives some categories that lead to nowhere. Verse 22, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul, if you caught there, he laid out a couple of different categories of worldly wisdom that ultimately leads away from, from flourishing life with God. He, he lays out Jews who are opposed and hostile to Jesus as an example that kept on demanding more and more miraculous signs to prove the claim of Christ. In every gospel, every story of who Jesus is and what he's done that's recorded in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, in every one there are accounts of religious leaders among the Jewish people who had ample evidence to put their faith in Jesus. They had, if not seen evidence with their own eyes, had seen people who had experienced firsthand the the saving miraculous power of Jesus. And yet they come to him again and again and they say, we need more signs. Show us the sign right now. Give Give us more evidence that you are who you claim to be because we can't believe it. Because they couldn't believe it because they didn't want a savior. They didn't think they needed a savior. They had put all of their faith in their own moral superiority, their own self-righteousness, and all the eggs of the basket of their salvation, their meaning in life was found in themselves. And a crucified Messiah was offensive to an unbelieving Jew. They believe they possess a wisdom of self-righteousness rooted in their own moral pride, and they believe that God was in their debt 
because of how great and obedient they were. And that moral pride is leading them on a path that seemed wise on the outside, but was ultimately foolish away from God. And then Paul says that there's Greeks that prioritized wisdom above all. They loved reason, and they thought that everything could be discovered through just deeper conversation and exploration and meditation and conversation. And much like today, the pursuit of science or reason, they put their eggs in the basket of of not their own self-righteousness, but in their own intelligence and intellect. And they could reason their way into discovering ultimate meaning on their own. No revelation from God was necessary. They had faith in their own heads. And so the message of the cross was just silly and barbaric. And the idea of God becoming a man and dying on a cross was just nonsense. But God in his wisdom, what does he do? He calls people in faith out of both of these groups and makes them a whole new people. And he gives them the gift of faith and they experience the the message of the gospel that seems so strange and foolish, but they've come to know it's the very power of salvation and ultimate wisdom. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The seemingly strangest, most ridiculous thing God has ever done turns out to be far wiser than the wisest thing a human could ever dream of doing. The cross of Christ. I came across this story this week about Billy Graham. And and when we think of Billy Graham, we, we think of just this just elder statesman of the church, just a treasure of the church. But in 1955, when he was a young man, he was 36 years old, he was invited by a group of Christian students at the University of Cambridge to come over and lead a ministry to the campus. And there was an immediate and strong reaction when the campus of Cambridge and the city surrounding Cambridge learned that Billy Graham was coming, even some people within the church around Cambridge learned that Billy Graham was coming. And they were offended. They looked down on Billy Graham. They thought he was an American simpleton and that his message of the cross of Jesus was was just not worthy of the high intellectual standard of Cambridge University. And so there were these articles that that deeply criticized him and were causing quite a stir. Actually, John Stott was was part of the group, one of my favorite theologians of all time, was part of the group that brought um, Billy over for this mission outreach. And they were doing it together. And so when, when Billy got over to Cambridge, he began to write in light of this criticism that he heard of. And it, and it really struck him. It had an effect on, on Dr. Graham. And so he kind of changed course. And he changed the usual message that he brought. And he wrote eight new messages, eight new talks that were really designed to meet the students and the, the professors at Cambridge, on the plane of their intellect. He, he, he wrote just some, some, some talks that seemed to, to try to, to tickle the intellectual curiosity of the campus that he thought would be intriguing and interesting. And so Monday night, the first night, he, 
he comes and he gives this first message that he wrote. And Tuesday night, he comes and he gives the second message that he wrote. And there were many students there. At the time, there were 8,000 students on campus at Cambridge, and 2,000 students and faculty had come up to show up to these talks. 25% of the university was there to hear Dr. Graham. And what happened was amazing. It had never really happened in the ministry of Dr. Graham before, because what happened over those first two days was nothing at all. There was no response there was no impact from his message. And, and an older professor who, who loved Jesus that worked at Cambridge pulled him aside after the second night and he said, Billy, don't pander to our intellectualism. Just preach the blood. Just preach the blood. I mean, just, just preach the cross. Do what you have been doing. Don't change your message to try to meet us. You let your message loose and it will change us. A man who was there, Dick Lucas, on that third night, he says, giving this first-hand account what happened, he says, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one side and the chaplain of the college who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very good men, but they were completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. So dear Billy got up that night and he began at Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over and every place, everywhere for 45 minutes. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And to everyone's shock, 400 women and men stayed. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Second thing, quickly. Now Paul turns his sight on the church itself. Foolishness, wisdom, and the membership of the church. Verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul, Paul says, hey, talk about foolishness, church in Corinth. Look at yourselves. Your very existence is, is foolish. Just like the message of the cross, the membership of the church, you're foolish by the world standards. You, you don't have impressive ancestry. You've never really accomplished much. You have no affiliation or pull. You're not movers or shakers. You're not well-connected. You're not highly educated. You're rather unimpressive. And God saved you. He's saying, welcome to the family of God. This is how God has always operated. Abraham was a really old man with a really old wife, and God chooses him and says, hey, I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you a nation. Moses was like a, a stuttering, exiled shepherd, and God's like, hey, I'm going to use you as a, as a deliverer to free my people. 
David's dad forgot he existed, right? A prophet, Samuel, comes to, to meet his sons, and he's like, this is them all. And Samuel's like, sure. And he's like, oh, yeah, there's one more, right? And God takes that forgotten son and makes him the ultimate example of what Jesus is going to be like in the Old Testament. When he's at his best, he's the best picture we have of the ultimate king we have in Christ, a protector. Esther was an immigrant orphan. God used her bravery to protect her people. Paul was the terror of the church, an instrument of destruction. And God chose him to be the most important church planner in history. And Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, he's saying to us, hey, you might be sitting here thinking, I'm not wise, I'm not strong, I'm not important. And Paul's like, yeah, you're right. How's that for self-help, right? <laughs> Paul's not concerned with our self-esteem here. He's like, you're not great. <laughs> Consider your calling. Yeah, you know. But this is the good news. Verse 27. But God chose. But God chose. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose you, church, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, things that have not even been in existence. We're dead in our sin. There's nothing there. God brings about life where there's no life so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So what does this mean to us as we close? Verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So Paul's going to say, hey, what's wise in Christ? The wisdom of God that has been made known to us. Church in Corinth, you, you get excited about that. You boast in that. You boast in the righteousness that's yours in Christ Jesus. That you, church, were like the poorest, most promiscuous, most indebted, most in addicted woman in a city. At the lowest point anybody could reach. And there was a king who ruled over that land who left his throne in love and proposed to you. He took you in marriage. And he, he became one with you and he, he cleansed you and he put you in a, a beautiful gown and he put a ring on your finger and he paid all your debts and all of your shame was wiped away because you're forever joined in him who is ultimately and eternally honorable. This is imputed righteousness. This is what Paul is saying that you can boast in. Because of Christ choosing his church, all his righteousness is fully given to his people forever. How is that possible? Paul's saying, hey, it's impossible because of the, the foolishness of the cross. It seems like it's, it's just folly. It's such a, a crazy, strange story. But actually the depths of the wisdom and the heart and the love of God is made known to us. We get to experience a wedding with God as a church because Jesus had a funeral. We get a crown of glory because a, a crown of thorns were beat into his skull. We get a robe of righteousness because he was stripped naked. 
This is given to us fully because of the work of Jesus on the cross. We boast in that love. Paul says, boast in sanctification. Paul tells us that we're to boast in Christ because we're sanctified in Christ. To be sanctified means to be set apart for a special purpose. And when we think of sanctification, we, we often and rightly think of something that God is currently doing in our lives. It's the ongoing presence of being set apart by, by the work of the Father to, to make us look more like the Son by the power of the Spirit. And that's true, thanks be to God, that's progressive sanctification. But what's interesting in the book of 1 Corinthians and really all through Scripture is that when the Bible talks about sanctification, most often it refers to it as something that has happened in our past. It's what scholars call definitive sanctification. In a real way, we've been set apart the moment we've put our faith in Jesus fully. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he puts it this way. Sanctification means that the determining factor of our existence as Christians is no longer our past, but it's Christ's past. Paul's saying, hey, you boast in that, that you are set apart fully for a special purpose, that that your history, as the Father looks at you, he sees the, the, the history of Jesus, and he delights in you. And then finally, Paul says, hey, you just boast in redemption. Boast in the fact that you were slaves to sin. Because we foolishly ran from God, and yet Jesus in his love, because of the cross, he paid for our sins. The wisdom of God has been made known to us fully in Christ Jesus, who gave his life so that the, the, the wages of sin, which is death, can be laid waste to so that we can have life forever. And that's When we come to the table, that's what we proclaim. That, hey, we've been set apart. We have a special purpose in Christ Jesus. That we have redemption, that a price has been paid for us. The, the body that was given, the blood that was poured out. This is the very wisdom of God. This unbelievable story. No human would ever make it up. But, but God in his wisdom has authored and orchestrated the work of Christ. That he died for us, that he rose for us. And that is the ultimate wisdom of the universe. Let's stand and pray.